What's up, y'all? It's great to see you guys. And continue on in the book of Philippians. I will explain why there's two letters on stage. So um, in a second, though. So go ahead. If you have a Bible with you, go and open up to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll continue our journey there. Uh, if you are reading out of one of the Mosaic Bibles, the beautiful blues, we are on page 1084. Uh, and you can always pick up a free one of these if you don't have a Bible in the back, if you would ever like to borrow one or take one home with you. Now, my, uh, uh, Allie and I recently moved into our new home. A lot of you guys are aware of that. And uh, my mom bought for our kids, for Asher and for Abby, uh, one uh, super generous gift. One of those three-story behemoths of a play set for the backyard that um, you can only find at the mo- what I view as the most magical place on earth. You know what I'm talking about, Costco. Uh, and um, and, and so, so it arrives in so many boxes. Like they just kept coming over like three days, just more and more boxes. And I was like, oh, this thing's bigger than I knew, you know, and, and, it, and it all arrived and, um, and it took a lot of time to put it together. In fact, some of my, uh, some of my friends came over and helped put it together, which was so super kind. Um, they're a lot more talented at such things than I am, but in total, even with some help, it still took me over 27 hours to put together. Like guys, this thing was uh, was a project. Maybe for some of you, it would take less than 27 hours. For me, it took me over 27 hours. Now, when it arrived, what I was hoping for was like a semi-pre-assembled contraption, right? Like that, there, there were certain parts that were kind of pre-assembled, but for the most part, it was like a full-on construction project. It's like somebody just cut the wood and threw it at me, you know? And, and that was hard for me. This is not my natural skill set. Um, it was like if if you sent me a HelloFresh meal, you know, like one of the pre, like the boxes and the, like it has everything kind of cut up for you and then you kind of just put it together. It's more like assembling than, than like culinary um, uh, other words that go with that. Like some like huge expansive project, right? This is like the version of that that would be like the French cuisine version that has so many different layers and steps and things you don't even know. The directions don't quite say, kind of assumes you have a skill set that I do not have. That was this building project. Now, the kids love it. They love it so much. As long as there's not a spider web on it, they're cool. Uh, and um, which makes it all worth all 27 plus hours. But uh, the reason I bring this up is because on Friday during nap time, Allie and I were getting some yard work done around the house. And as we were, as we were doing said work, I uh, was cutting branches off of bushes and trees and things like that. And so there, were some tr- there was a tree that was hanging over Asher and Abby's new playhouse. And so I was cutting them back so that way it wasn't like dropping stuff all over the house constantly. Like that makes sense, right? Okay. So I climb all the way up to the third story of this thing though, so that I could cut the branches down. And some of the branches were kind of like oddly shaped and oddly situated. So I was literally leaning over the edge. Like it's this, it's about this tall, about three feet tall wooden paneling that is holding my body. And I am fully against it as I am cutting these branches. Allie wasn't watching. Otherwise I wouldn't have done it probably, but I was doing that. And as I am cutting these branches, relying on something that I put together, all of a sudden I realized I put this thing together. Like my life is in the hands of myself and my craftsmanship. That's a really scary place for me. 
And that reminded me of the word confidence, where we put our confidence. See, I had to be pretty confident that I didn't cut corners. Otherwise, I could be potentially confidently falling down, 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 down three stories off of a playground. Confidence matters. It gives us the drive to do stuff, the confidence to do stuff. For example, when you go to Walt Disney World, you know that you are always going to be safe, right? You don't go on attractions wondering, I wonder what's going to happen this time around. You don't go on test track going, I wonder if when it banks that turn, if I just kind of just keep going. Like you're, you're scared, but you're not like actually scared for your life. Otherwise, none of us would probably do it. If it was like a nine out of 10, a nine out of 10 odds that it was going to go in your favor, you probably still wouldn't do it with 10%. Shoot, if it was 99.9% effective at making the, the full rounds, you probably wouldn't do it if you knew your safety was online. We place confidence in the Imagineers and engineers who continue to maintain those, those ride systems, right? Now, we have a lot of confidence. We have put a certain level of confidence in one another all the time when we're having conversations, when we share something um, that's sensitive. I mean, when you're in the lobby before or after our gathering, we have a level of confidence that the person that you're talking with isn't going to punch you in the face, right? Probably not actively having that kind of confidence. But still, if you thought that you might get punched in the face every time you step into Mosaic, you probably wouldn't show up, right? Or at least you wouldn't have conversations with people. But what happens when our confidence is misplaced? There's a quote that I ran across a time or two. Maybe you've heard it before. It's by a Catholic Trappist monk, a guy named Thomas Merton. He once said it this way. People may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success. See, ladders. Yeah, yeah, I get it now. Okay, the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Yeah, that's one of those kind of quotes. Now you're like, oh, yeah. Makes you think, right? Now, in our cultural context, maybe a better descriptor than the ladder of success might be what I was thinking about, the ladder of flourishing, right? We, we, all of us, I would imagine, want to live a life of flourishing. Now, we might define flourishing a little bit different. For some of us, it might be achievement. For some, it's ease, discovery, or just going around having fun. So we envision what this life of flourishing is, and we confidently begin our journey up the ladder, but what if our confidence is misplaced? What if, as Thomas Merton so eloquently put, our ladder has been up against the wrong wall all along? Scary, right? And it gives you pause to, okay, which, where, what wall is my ladder against? See, I found this to be so true in my life and not just on a one-time basis, but on a regular basis. Sometimes I go into autopilot in my life and I will move along my ladder at my pace with my own wisdom and ingenuity and I keep climbing higher and higher. Don't worry, I don't think it's gonna break. I'm putting confidence in that. Uh, but as, as I am climbing, the reason I can kind of sense that I am putting my confidence in the wrong ladder is because my, my giveaways are I start working too much and believe everything is my responsibility. And then the other thing is I start getting an unhealthy attachment to mind-numbing entertainment. And that's just me. I don't know about you. And then I go for months and all of a sudden I haven't even questioned my confidence in my own ability to know what actual flourishing in my life looks like. See, for each of us, we can place our confidence so easily in our own ability to flourish and we barely give God a second thought. 
See, there are significant moments of discovery in life for each and every one of us. Opportunities that God has for you to discover more of himself and his desires for you. The only question is our confidence. Where is it? Do we, is, is our confidence so much in ourselves and in our own ability that we don't take the time to go, do I have a posture? Am I living my life with a posture of discovery? And a posture is, is my heart prepared to be challenged? If God were to speak to me, maybe it's through somebody else, through a prompting from his spirit, through the word of God, that if he were to lead me, guide me and direct me, would I be open to listening? Do you have the mindset of a student or do you believe you already have it already figured out or at least mostly figured out on your own? See, this is our question tonight. Do you live your life with a closed fist existence or do you do this with God? God, if you want to challenge me, if, you, if, you, if my confidence is me, Lord, I want you to expose that because the, I, mean, I think if we're being honest for so many of us, that is at least a regular struggle. If not something we outright punt and we never even consider. Where's your confidence? Is it in yourself, your desires, your wants, what you perceive to be your needs? Or are you looking at God's definition of those things? This is where we're going at tonight in this passage in the book of Philippians. So Paul is going to attack almost every place that he, this church that he is writing to in Philippi, or that you or I typically are tempted to put our confidence. See, our confidence is what leads us up the ladder. So let's see what Paul, what Paul discovered about both the right and the wrong ladders. So this makes sense because uh, just a little bit of context where we were just out of the last few weeks is that Paul just gave us three examples of human beings that we have the opportunity to learn from along with this church. He gave himself as an example. He gave Timothy, who is his beloved disciple, as an example. And last week we talked about his friend Epaphroditus, who actually came from this church in Philippi and was a really encouraging, wonderful, servant-hearted leader. All of them were different in their roles, their personalities, their experiences. But what all of them had in common is lives surrendered to the way of Jesus. Lives looking at the ladder that would lead to flourishing in Christ, not a version that is in their own confidence, in their own wisdom, in their own understanding. So Paul is going to once again circle back to himself and his story. And in that, what he is going to be exposing is where we put our confidence. So starting in verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, joy is a major theme in this letter. And this is because Paul doesn't just want this church to know the right things. It's not that he doesn't want them to know the right things. He wants them to not just know the right things, but to delight in the right things, to desire the right things, that their hearts, their affections would be stirred towards Jesus. Hence why he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Get excited in Jesus. Not just, finally, my brothers, know more things about the Lord. See, 
you better know some things about Jesus if you're going to be able to rejoice in him. But it's more than just knowledge. It is about your affections being stirred. And this is a big deal for Paul. Hence why he says, after he has already said this phrase, rejoice in the Lord multiple times, and he'll say it a few more times before this letter is over. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. He is aware that he's repeating himself. He's not like, oh, I just keep going back to that same thought. He's like, no, I'm doing that on purpose. And I want you to get that one. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This actually would be trouble to him because every word that Paul writes matters. In fact, every word that he writes costs money. See, there was no prime delivery, same day, you know, uh, getting to his house and in, in his house in prison in Rome. Didn't happen that way, right? Instead, he used papyrus and would write on papyrus. And I don't mean that terrible, ungodly font. Um, he would use papyrus scrolls and these scrolls would arrive and he would, he would already know exactly what he was saying before it made it to the, to the actual papyrus scroll. Every word mattered because papyrus was super costly. It was very expensive. If you don't know what papyrus is, um, if you've ever been to Epcot, Spaceship Earth, the Egyptian dude that's banging the reeds together, yeah, that guy, papyrus. Uh, and, it, and, it, and so that was an expensive process to, to procure papyrus. So when he says to write the same, thing, the same things to you is no trouble to me, it's kind of interesting because in actuality, every sentence that he writes is kind of a trouble to him in the effect that it is costly. It is costing him money to write these things. But what he is saying is that while that might be costly for him financially, for them to know and understand these things is worth all the money that he could put into it. So he goes on from there. Verse two, he starts. Look out for the dogs. So just talking about rejoicing in the Lord. And now this is, it feels like it's getting a little bit of a different tone, right? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Like this feels like a zombie apocalypse saying, right? For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a, per, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And this is going to be a great passage. So let's go through this one, one piece at a time. The overarching concept that he wants us to walk away with is this. To let your confidence be exclusively in knowing Jesus. Let your confidence be exclusively in knowing Jesus. Sometimes we can get sucked into like some false binaries where it's either 100% this way or it's 100% this way. This is not one of those times. Let your confidence be exclusively in knowing Jesus. And Paul's going to explain why that is. But he starts with that interesting, slightly apocalyptic phrase, right? Look out for the dogs, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So what is he talking about? 
Well, there's a group of people we've talked about a time or two called the Judaizers. The Judaizers had this really bad habit. They were this sect of the, of the Jewish religion who really wasn't a fan of Paul and a lot of what the early church was doing in allowing Gentiles, non-Jewish individuals to come to follow after Jesus. They, they didn't mind non-Jews coming to follow after Jesus, but they believed that they needed to, to fully become Jewish before, like religiously, ritualistically, before they could begin to follow after Jesus. So they would literally follow Paul into town and then come and antagonize and stir up and stir up a bunch of dissension after Paul already arrived into places. So Paul had multiple run-ins with these people at this point in his life. So he does not mince words with them. He dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. See, they believe in the gospel kinda, only as far as it doesn't stretch them out of their comfort zones too far. Their confidence is in Jesus a bit. They believed that before any, and what that meant is before any non-Jew could become a follower of Jesus, they had to fully submit to all the rituals and customs of the Jewish religion first. In other words, you could sum up their position is clean up your act and then come to Jesus. None of us ever act that way, right? Unfortunately, that can be the way that maybe you grew up in the faith tradition of your, of your past, or it might even be still some of the way that some of us still are tempted to think from time to time. Be better, then come to Jesus. But that's like getting in, getting in a car accident and you, and you have bones that need to be reset and, and, you're, and you have some severe injuries and, and your first thought is, oh, I know what I need to do. I need to reset my own bones, heal myself up, and then I can go to the ER. Like that would be crazy and nonsensical, right? But that's the thinking. Get your act together, then come and respond to Jesus. Hence why Paul calls these individual dogs. He says they mutilate the flesh. Now what he is talking about, this is a reference to the requirement that they held of circumcision, which was a required Jewish custom for all males, that you would be circumcised if you were a non-Jew coming into the Jewish faith. You needed to, to enter into that part of the covenant. Now, Here's what you need to know about Paul. Paul was born Jewish, so he is actually a circumcised individual, and he is still not anti-circumcision or anti-law, which we're going to get to in a little bit. In fact, you guys may have heard this story a time or two, but Paul, even with his disciple Timothy, when Timothy first came to be his disciple and went on missionary journeys with him, Timothy was not ethnically Jewish. He was an ethnic Roman. And so Paul actually has Timothy get circumcised with consent and, uh, and he gets circumcised because they're about to go on mission to reach Jewish people. And they don't want that to be a barrier, a distraction to the gospel. So Timothy, even though he doesn't have to, even though he's not being required to, says, for the sake of them, I will make this very difficult decision to enter in and be able to share the gospel with them. So Paul isn't anti-circumcision or whatever. What he was, was he was absolutely against putting your value and your confidence in anything that we can do, rather than the rescue operation that Jesus effected on the cross. Verse three, 
Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. You see what he's saying is what marks a true follower of Jesus isn't a physical marker on the flesh or anything that we do, but the spirit of God descending into your heart in the mind of a believer, transforming you from the inside out, raising you from spiritual death into spiritual life. What he means by worship, who worship by the Spirit of God, is he's not just talking about coming to a worship gathering context. What he means is that your entire life is now defined as an act of worship. That everything you do would be an offering up to God. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Now, here's the interesting part about that. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you're like, absolutely, for sure, totally agree. But here's a question. If I were to ask you right now, how do you know, if you, if you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, how do you know that you are saved? How would you answer? Maybe jot that down on your notepad or answer that to yourself. Would you say it's based on my church attendance record? Would you say it's based on my involvement in community because I serve on a few teams here at Mosaic, um, because I'm a part of a discipleship group where I go to Bible study, because I know things about Jesus, because I'm involved in some really good social, ethical, or charitable causes? You see, if that's where our confidence is, then we're walking up the wrong ladder. Rest and rejoice in the Lord and confidence that is rooted in the truth that the Spirit of God dwells within you, enabling you to live a life of authentic worship to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus. Now, again, we prob- most of us probably agree with that concept, that sentiment, right? But that's easier said than done. Hence why Paul's writing it here. In verse four through six, he, let's reread what he says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So he's saying, don't have confidence in the flesh, but I get it because I, could, I experienced the temptation as well. But then he goes a step further and he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We've talked about self-righteousness before. That word can kind of get muddled and with like, with Christianese involved. Self-righteousness is self-rightness. Do you find yourself because of what you do, what you think, the way you live, your views on life, culture, social issues, that that makes you better than somebody else? That is self-righteousness. Do you ever find yourself thinking that you're better than somebody else because you think, because you're smart and they're dumb on a particular issue? Because you don't fall into the same dumb pitfalls that they do. Paul is saying that if that were the case, he has even more reason to feel that way than you do. He even lists them. And he gives us some opportunities that we might be tempted to have confidence in our flesh in. First, he brings up is rituals. Are you, is your confidence in the rituals that you have performed? He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. 
if Paul were here, he would say something like this. From my birth, my parents ensured that I was keeping with the right religious rituals. You think you came from a nice Christian family and somehow that translates to you being a Christian? (laughs) I was better than you ritualistically before I could even wipe the drool off my chin. Like that's Paul. Rituals, he has more reason for confidence in that. The second thing he says, of the people of Israel. He's talking about his ethnicity, the national identity that he comes from. He is saying, I was literally born into God's chosen people. You think you're so special because you were born in Rome or America or the Netherlands or wherever? You think that's what makes you special? Ha! Like, I'm God's chosen. Hashtag blessed, y'all. Like, he... If it's about ethnicity, Paul's saying, I already won that one. Then he says, talks about respected rank. He talks about being of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the nation of Israel was comprised of 12 tribes that were the descendants of the original 12 sons of Jacob, who became known as Israel. And each of them had their own cultural history, their own failings between each tribe. So after a while, some tribes kind of became known as better than others, more popular than others, more powerful than others. Now, he came from the tribe of Benjamin, which was a very well-respected tribe in the nation of Israel. In other words, Paul is saying, I always sat at the cool kids table. Like if it's about a people of belonging, I belong to the best of them. You think your association with the right people makes you awesome? I'm better. Then he talks about traditions. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. You think that you growing up in a particular church context or denomination that has some great tradition marks you, makes you better than others? Paul's saying, I was raised a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was raised in the purity of the nation of Israel and the religious beliefs. I'm better. Rule keeping as to the law of Pharisee. See, only the smartest, most devout Jewish men would grow up to become Pharisees like Paul. You think you're smart? You think you're wise, disciplined? You think you command respect? You think that you have your act together? Paul's saying, I'm better than that. And then he talks about zeal. Something that I think that a lot of our culture would value as well is zeal. Authenticity. You value authenticity, sincerity, doing what you believe is right at any cost. Paul says, I was the most sincere person you could ever hope to meet. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. He's not bragging on that one, but that was Paul's life before knowing Jesus. His, his job was to actually go and hunt down Christians. And he did it because he believed that's what, that's what would honor God. So as to zeal, nobody was more authentic than me and my beliefs. Obedience to the law. Do you compare your intentions against the actions of others and come out thinking that you're awesome? Paul was even better. One of my favorite rap artists, a guy named Shy Lin, uh, he actually wrote a song based on this passage. It is literally called I Am Better Than You. Uh, look it up. It's hilarious. It's on Spotify and Apple Music. Um, but it literally is this song, uh, this passage broken down where it's like Paul saying, I'm better than you. And then it go- ends with where we're going in in just a few minutes. See, what Paul is saying is I have climbed all the steps on the ladder. 
If you're talking about putting confidence in your own goodness, in rituals, in your ethnicity or national identity, your rank, your tradition, your rule keeping, your zeal, your obedience, I'm the guy. Like you would be second place. You're not taking gold. I get that honor if that's what it was all about. He climbed the ladder of success, the ladder of self-flourishing. And thank God, Jesus knocked that ladder right over. You see, Paul was not looking for God because he thought he was already good with God. He thought he didn't need anything else because he was relying on his own rightness in himself. You see, it's hard to be found when you don't even realize that you're lost, right? Jesus once met uh, another individual, a tax collector by the name of Levi also known as Matthew, and he was a known sinner. You see, he had climbed the ladder of success and he had stepped on his own people to do so. See, as a tax collector, many of you may know this, but as a tax collector, he, he was despised in the people of Israel because they were one, sellouts, because they were working with the Roman oppressors who ruled over them to collect taxes for them, for Caesar. But not only that, they also would skim off the top to take their income and would take way more than what was fair and justified. They would get rich on the backs of selling out their brothers and sisters in their their nation. He had scammed, sold out, and done a lot of damage. Yet Jesus didn't look at him and said, go get yourself clean, get better, and then come to me. You You may know this story. What does Jesus do? he invites himself over for dinner instead to his house. Isn't that crazy? Like, do we stop and actually see how bizarre or weird that thought is? The idea that I am going to be invited to Jesus. No, no, Jesus is inviting himself over to my house. Nobody comes over to my house. In fact, some Pharisees, they see this going down and they're absolutely disgusted. And rightfully so. I actually get them on this one. This guy sold out his people and incept on them. Why is this religious teacher associating with someone so broken, so discardable, so stained by deceit, someone who would even sell out his own people? Don't you kind of get the Pharisees on this one? But what does Jesus say? When Jesus heard this, he told them, Mark chapter two, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. You think you're better than him. He, he knows now that he has been climbing the wrong ladder. He was, but he knows that. And he is stepping off of that ladder and he wants to come and follow after my way. But you guys, you think you've been climbing the right ladder all along. You don't know how damaged you are. My greatest fear for any of us, for the church in America, for the church around the globe, is that so easily we put our confidence in ourselves. We, we accept the grace of Jesus only to the extent that it's fire insurance but not to the extent that it is something, a reality we live in every single day, moment by moment. Lord, I need your grace today for this interaction with my coworker. Lord, as I'm with this guest, would you you help me to represent you because I don't have it together on my own. Father, when I am with my kids, I am just so grieved by the way I can be just such a jerk. Would you challenge me? Would you transform me? Where do we put our confidence? 
See, we live in a culture that is steeped in confident individualism, where the answer to low self-esteem and low self-worth is to just have a massively higher view of self, to think you are more worthy, that you are more everything. But you see, that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is not that you are awesome. It's that Jesus is. And he sees you in the midst of your unawesomeness and he looks you in the eye, in the pit. And he says, in your mind. That's why the gospel is good news. Not because we're awesome, but because while we are not awesome, he pursued us. He does. And when the father now looks at us, for those of us who have been adopted in the forever family of God, he doesn't see our rags, our failed attempts, our brokenness, our, our terrible attempts to impress him or other people. He sees the blood of the lamb. He sees his beloved son and he looks at us and says, now that's what's worthy. <laughs> see, we don't do anything to earn our salvation. We don't do anything to sustain our salvation. It is the work of God. What we do is surrender day by day. We get ourselves off of our ladder and we walk over to his and we see that they're actually diametrically opposed. That this one is the life of flourishing under our terms. This one is genuine flourishing in the kingdom of God. See, if anyone could put stock in their own awesomeness, Paul's the guy, right? How does Paul finish this? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You've probably heard that passage a time or two, but you see how good this is? Whatever gain I had, whatever awesomeness I thought I had in my ladder, it's nothing. It's loss. It's not even neutral. It's loss. It is a detriment. Be gone. I don't want that in my life anymore for the sake of knowing Christ. Whatever gain I had, I count it as lost. See, Paul knows that he's better than you. He knows that he's better than me. And for sure he was better than me. And left on his own, that would have led to his own destruction. He could have kept climbing his own ladder all the way to hell. Led on his own, he would have confidently and zealously climbed up the wrong ladder. But praise be to God that he pushed the ladder down and said, Paul, why do you persecute me? And he called him to come and follow. And now Paul sees all those things that were previously credits to his resume. Now as a living demonstration only of his stupidity and arrogance. And if that's how Paul can think, then maybe that's the way we can think. When you think of someone or some group who is self-righteous, who do you think of? Who just came to mind? I'd imagine that if we talked to Paul and we asked him, who do you think is self-righteous? He'd have said, before knowing Jesus, me. And oftentimes, still me, sometimes. And so for us, I don't want us to focus so much on, yeah, absolutely, I hate self-righteous people. They are all the worst, right? And then you think of that person or that group of people or that denomination or that whatever. See, that would be missing the point. It's actually do a soul inventory where you go, Lord, would you look inside the cavities of my heart, my mind, and my soul and expose any wayward ways within me? Any ways that I am still looking to myself to save me? The ways that I want to be confident in my own goodness. 
See, we're more like the Judaizers than we probably want to know. But here's the good news. That's not who we are anymore. It's just not. It's not our identity. That ladder is gone. The enemy tries to distract us by giving us a mirage of its existence still. But the reality is this one, the one that leads to life, light, and flourishing in Jesus. That's the only real thing. It's the only exhaustive thing that will expand into eternity. So what ladder are you tempted to put your confidence in? For me, I am tempted to put my confidence in my intellect and my ability to problem solve. But I don't want to. And I confess that so often it's so easy for me to make decisions day in and day out without prayerfully considering them because I think my ideas are pretty good. But in that, that's me going back to the wrong ladder. See, I want my confidence not to be in my ingenuity or discernment, but in, in Christ and exclusively him. What about you? Where do you put your confidence? Is it in rituals? National identity, rank, tradition, rule-keeping, authenticity, obedience, what? Where do you find your goodness? Because the correct answer is in Jesus, obviously. But to get there where that is consistently our answer is going to take a lifetime. So we buckle up and we go on the journey together. And we discover this more more and more day by day together in community. And we remind ourselves that anything that we could think could possibly add to Jesus to make us better only cheapens the purity and beauty of the gospel itself. So don't do it. It's not worth it. It only cheapens it. Instead, let your confidence be exclusively in knowing Jesus. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up. So as you continue to draw near to Jesus, what I wanna challenge all of us to is to genuinely allow your heart and your mind to be transformed by him that you would discover over the course of your lifetime how good, how precious, how beautiful the true goodness of the gospel is. And that day by day, as we walk with Jesus, as we approach the, the ladder that is filled with confidence in him, the ladder that leads us nearer and nearer to the heart of Jesus, that we would realize that where it leads us is not just feeling better and flourishing in the here and now, but to life, light, and flourishing from now into the other side of eternity. Earlier, we watched that video of church in Poland where Ukrainian refugees are worshiping alongside their Polish brothers and sisters. Their national identities are now irrelevant in that moment. What matters is that they are now, their citizenship is found in Christ. Now there are genuine needs that they, I imagine that tomorrow they'll be working through together. Practical, tangible needs. And that's beautiful. But I look forward to the day when, when all of this, all the toil, the warfare, the chaos, the disease, the suffering, the terrible, terrible things of this world and planet death will pass away. And what we'll discover is all that is left is life, light, and flourishing. So what if we began to live tomorrow as practice for that moment where we lived in love in this moment, knowing that that moment, those moments are the ones that stretch into eternity. Would you pray with me?
Father, I cannot believe that we have any ability to be confident in you. Not because you're not worthy, but because, man, we are knuckleheads, but you love us. So Father, I pray for each and every one of us, wherever we are at, wherever your spirit has challenged us or given us question tonight, that we'd be sensitive to that, that we would call out any voice that tries to just tell us, see, you're not good enough. Lord, I pray that we would be able to respond back to any whispers of foolishness by saying, yeah, you're darn right, I'm not good enough, but Christ is. And in him, my hope is found. My hope is not found in myself it's not found in another human. It is found squarely in Jesus. And if he is enough to bring me from death to life, then he is enough to sustain me day by day by the power of his spirit. So Lord, I pray that over my brothers and sisters tonight, that you would be transforming our hearts, our minds, our wills and our desires to rejoice in the Lord always. May we say it again, rejoice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.